Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help. Or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. everyone, this is LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Today, I have a very special guest with me. She is the president of She Moolah, Liz Kitchell. Hi, Liz. How are you? I'm fantastic, LaShonda. How are you? You know, I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm excited for this conversation. Um, so I'm going to start like I do with all of my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? My labor of love is creating possibilities. I absolutely love that. Um, I love it because I've been around you long enough to know what it means, but I can imagine for my listeners, that sounds very, very big. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about what you mean by possibilities. What I mean by possibilities is people often have these dreams and aspirations in their life. And they don't always act upon them. They stay as these dreams. So when you're little, you know, you're, you're brilliant at daydreaming and, and um, figuring out what you want to be when you grow up. And it can be anything you wanted to be a doctor. Maybe you wanted to be a ballet dancer. Maybe you wanted to um, spin records, whatever it is, right? I wanted to be Xanadu when I grew up because I love the roller skating with the electric blue shorts. Um, and I thought that that is what I wanted to do every day of my life. <laughs> and then reality hits and we have to have responsibility and we forget the dreaming aspect of it. So the possibilities for me is bringing about the balance of the experiential side of life with reality. And that experiential side of life is what brings you that joy, that rejuvenation, that connection, um, and what fills you up. That's what I mean by possibilities. That's beautiful. And so I'm assuming that your labor of love is helping other people find, recreate, or um, reinvent maybe these Mm -hmm. possibilities. Does that sound accurate? Absolutely. That's awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about how this became your labor of love? Where is this passion rooted for you? So this showed up in my life because one day after having children and, and serving you know, my work and serving um, the children, I realized I personally had forgotten how to dream. And I woke up one day and said, there's all these things I thought I would do in my life and um, that my job was just a vehicle to get me there. And the money I saved was just a vehicle to get me there. But I wasn't taking the steps to actually do it. And I knew that I had to create time and space And I had a whole support team. My husband is my biggest cheerleader of getting out there and doing my dreams, goals, and aspirations. And um, I woke up one day working for a financial organization and realizing I was an autopilot and it it had to stop or else I would probably spiral out of control in some form of depression, indifference, and, you know, a lot of negative emotions that would have just, um, 
gotten me to the point of being sick versus living my life. And that's where it really stemmed from this passionate change to put this as a priority and helping people step into their own possibilities and creating my own possibilities for myself as well. Wow. Thank you. So I have a couple of directions I want to go. I think I'll start with the last question that popped into my mind, which was helping people realize their possibilities. Did that mean you had to first fully step into your own or were you able to help people as you were figuring it out for yourself? (laughs) What is it they say? We often teach things that we're five steps ahead on. That's what I do for counseling for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, um, you know, it's, we figure this out as we go. And I think for each person, it's slightly different, but the major aha is the, the reigniting your dreams that has to come first. Mm -hmm. And once they're reignited, then it can be a, a plethora of different ways to go about it. But we have to remember that it's the dreaming Um, and that things are possible. Yeah, no, that's really good. So what I was thinking of while you were talking about that are a couple of things. One, I know I've said before many times in regards to my own story, and that is that um, there is no dreaming in trauma. So in the midst of trauma, there's only survival. And so I recognize within my own story, within my own life, that there were a lot of possibilities that, that were unrealized for me because I spent a lot of time in survival mode. And so you get kind of caught up in the day to day, what's directly in front of me. And this aspirational dreaming of what can be, um, wasn't even something that was on the radar. I also think that um, daydreaming is often seen as the antithesis of productivity. Mm-hmm. And that is such, um, I think that's a cultural thing. I think it's a societal thing. I think us here in the West and, you know, I'm sure it can be generalized in a lot of directions with some exceptions, of course, but you're just not encouraged to daydream, right? Even in school, I do a lot of work in schools and the kid who's daydreaming, it's like, hey, 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 focus, right? Right. Come back to the here and now, focus on what we're doing. And it takes this very narrow drive towards achievement and really, I think, undercuts the legs and wings of of what can be for so many, uh, so many people. And it starts super, super early. Does anything spring up for you after I say that? So much springs up for me. So first and foremost, there has to be a place for the daydreaming to always occur, no matter how old you are. So the dreaming is where the area of possibilities comes from. And then as you're dreaming, there are things that will feel and resonate correct for you. And you're like, wow, that that's something that's always been with me. It keeps coming back to me. So, you know, I've always I've always had um, this daydreaming that I would be speaking and dancing on a stage Now, this started when I was little and I was a ballet dancer, but even now as the president of Shimua, one of the things we do is that we, you know, we, we realize that people need to fully live their life 
and dancing and celebrating is a part of that, right? So when things are trends and they happen over and over again, like, huh, I wonder how that's going to happen. And this seems to be something that really resonates well with me and gets me excited because it's something comes up over and over again. And when it comes up, I feel good. So the emotions, and I know you're very familiar with emotions, are often indicators of what's going on. When we're in that trauma and surviving, um, it's all autopilot. And when we can start to transition into the realm of possibilities and creating the emotions, we can start to feel them a little bit more. And they're truly indicators if something feels good or if it doesn't feel good. Um, and that's often for me the sign of, oh, I really enjoy this possibility. I'm going to move forward. It doesn't mean that fear doesn't come forward or part of me says, oof. I don't know. You've tried this before, right? And a different part of my personality who has experienced something differently is trying to show me a different outcome of repeating of my past. I can pause it and say, oh, is this necessarily true? Is this something I want? I can fathom the future and say, if I'm still motivated by this possibility, I can figure out how to maneuver through this fear or this hesitation. And often those come from things I don't know how to do. I don't feel equipped. I don't trust my own skill set. Sometimes we don't need those skill sets. And I can, once I hone in on a way of something that's a possibility, I can then say, oh, I know how to do these things to get there. Let me focus on this. I'll write down everything I don't know how to do. And I can come back to those and get help if needed. But let's focus on what I do know how to do to move through this fear. And a lot of times people, when they see all the things they don't know how to do, and I was like this for a long time, I would just curl up in a ball saying, oh, I'm not meant to dream because mm -hmm. I didn't know how to maneuver through that uncomfortable zone of what I don't know how to do. And a lot of times you don't even need to know half of those things. You just maneuver forward with the things you do know how to do. That's such a good point. I, I really do hope that someone listening to that got inspiration from it. And I can 100% verify <laughs> the validity of that. There are so many things I don't know how to do as a business owner or thought I didn't know how to do that. Right. I was like, yeah, I could never do that. Like I, and I've said this many times too. I never wanted to be a business owner. <laughs> I was like, no, it felt too big. It felt like too many things I didn't know how to do. But like you said, when I focused on the things I could do, um, it's amazing yeah. at how many things you realize, oh, I, I didn't necessarily need that anyway. So I love that. You know, when you were talking, it brought me to this point um, that I actually experienced this weekend. Um, and part of that is this. So a combination of what I said before, there's no dreaming and trauma. There's only survival. But then there's this idea that dreaming comes in a state of rest. Mm -hmm. And so many of us don't dream because we don't rest. <laughs> and, you know, for those of us who uh, are into uh, kind of polyvagal theory and how the body yes. and brain collaborate is if we're not in social engagement in our parasympathetic, our ventral vagal state, then we won't be able to dream 
because our autonomic nervous system either has us revved in our sympathetic nervous system or it has us shut down in our dorsal vagal response. And so if we can get back to that, that restful social engagement in our ventral vagal uh, response is when we can connect and be grounded and be relational with ourselves, with the possibilities and with the dreams, then that, that is where it happens. And so I want to say that because if we don't break this down physiologically, biologically, and talk about our body brain connection, then so many people will just say, what's wrong with me? Like I try to dream or I want to dream. I just can't. We, we, we uh, turn all of this inward mm-hmm. and it seems like it's something that's a deficit for us and we can't do when it just could be, we need to find that place of safety or those people of safety, those moments of safety yes. that is when we can, can fully dream. So you're and super excited over there. Tell me about I your excitement. I, <laughs> I got so many chills as you're talking because that. I guess that's really my labor of love more than anything is creating safe circles so that people can feel safe enough to begin to dream. Mm -hmm. That has to come first. Right. And it doesn't matter like what the background is. um, But if we don't feel safe, then you can't get to the point of creating. Absolutely. I mean, just literally it's impossible. That's just how the brain and body collaborate. So safety is going to be important. So creating these circles of safety, tell me a little bit. I know what I mean by safety, but let's tease that out a little bit for the listener. When we're talking about you have to feel safe. One, I want to say there's a difference between being safe and feeling safe, Uh but you have to feel safe in order to dream. So what are some of these aspects of safety that people, um, should be aware of? So the first thing is I, I believe that there are three brains in the body. There's the head, the heart, and the gut, and they all have to be in communication and feel connected to feel safe. If one is out by themselves, they feel like their support team is not there. So that's one of the things I do in creating safety. Um, And sometimes it's just modeling it and being in a position where my head, my brain, and my heart can have that open communication. So if my body does not feel comfortable, my heart and my brain can pick up on it. No, that, that, it, 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 it's so much encompassing of what I talk about (laughs) all the time, getting those things aligned And I would even say, you know, another lens of that is our littles, right? I talk about our littles all the time. So our inner children are still living many of the experiences we had growing up. And as we begin to dream, the realities of their present can sometimes be contradictory to the dreaming that we have. And conversely, like you said, their dreaming can seem contrary to our current reality. But when we can make contact with those parts of ourselves and give them what they always needed and always wanted, always deserved, but didn't get, we begin to create the safety for them to just be who they they are. So, so often we have these inner children who are 
five, seven, 12, 15, and they feel like they have to be adults and have all the answers and do all the work. And what actually needs to happen is we need to make contact with them to say, you get to play, you get to dream, you get to just be, I'm the functional adult. I'm going to take care of it. I got you. And once we allow those parts of us to dream, a whole new possibility of things open up in ways that it's very hard for me to describe really in some ways, but it becomes this, this intuitive knowing that there are possibilities there that we just were not aware of in kind of the hustle, bustle and grind of the very adult, mature um, ways of surviving in the world. So that is a really huge deal. So tell us how this shows up. So you, your passion, your labor of love, creating these spaces, tell us a little bit about tangibly how that shows up in your life. So one of the things, and I think this is important for people to hear, I give everybody who's listening to this permission to take a nap and permission to lay under a tree and daydream or permission to get on the floor and play with your children or your grandchildren. And sometimes that will bring us to a position of present moment, safety, and connecting our body, mind, spirit or our head, our heart, our gut in a way that you can see these things play out on a more of a day-to-day basis. So um, the things that you want to do as a child, but you can bring an adult spin to it is kind of fun. And when we start to realize that I have a little bit of an anticipatory excitement or wonderment, I realize I've gotten back to the area of possibilities. And I've allowed it to happen and I'm feeling safe. So that's a little of how, and I know you and I have done this, you know, with each other before, you know, in similar circles where if a story is playing out from the past and we see it being playing out from the past based on a little or one of our personalities, we can invite our present day self that has all the skills and the knowledge and the compassion and radical acceptance into a conversation with that little and say, I got you. Mm -hmm. So that creating that sense of trust inside of myself also allows me to do it with others. It's so powerful. (laughs) I mean, we have seen it play out numerous times together, let alone the times you've done it. Um, you know, when I wasn't there and it is a beautiful thing to see now, a direction I would love to go in because I think this will be very helpful for listeners. And I know it has been very, very transformative for me. It's let's take your labor of love and talk about how you, um, aid, support and guide people towards possibilities from a financial perspective. Yeah. Um, as that has been the the <clears throat> excuse me the experiences I've had with you with you has been very um, in line in sync and compatible with my own social mental emotional social work <laughs> that I'm doing with myself and has aided to so much of the transformations I've been able to take. So um, tell us a little bit about how this labor of love for you then overlays into the financial background that you have and how you help people 
in that way. Yeah. So thank you. This is, it shows up in many different ways. With Shimula, um, the, the mission of Shimula is to bring about balance between the experiential and the logical side of money. So the experiential side of money is what the money is for. It's, you know, the vacations and the ballet lessons, um, the birthday parties, the roller skating parties, whatever it is, right? It's all the things that you're looking to create for your family and yourself and your friends, the experiences that you engage in. So money is a vehicle to live your life. That's the experiential side of money. The logical side of money is what people are typically trained on. Um, money comes in, money goes out. You bring in X, uh, you know, I'll make sure that you don't spend more than X, save 10, 20%, whatever it is. So there's lots of people who are out there teaching this logical side of money and they've been around for decades. But really what needs to happen is there needs to be a balance between this logical and this experiential side of money. There are many people out there, women, creatives, people that maybe didn't have money growing up that are really, really smart. And they're like, how can I just not grasp this around money? And some of it is because they have personalities that they developed, um, their littles, as you call them as well, the archetypes, whatever, whatever is their defense mechanism that they used when they were not getting their needs met as a child, show up in all patterns, including money. So there's a lot of people that say is how you do everything is how you do money and how you do money is how you do everything. So I translate everything that we've talked to, to money. And I want to shift and take the taboo out of money. So there's a lot of people that just aren't comfortable talking about money. They'll talk about anything else but money because there's a ton of emotions behind it. There's a ton of patterns and stories behind it. And a lot of them may not even be true, but it's just the perspective and the lenses through which we're looking. So we see it as a truth. So that's how I translate my labor of love into what I do for other people. I'm sure you have questions. So ask I away. do. Yeah. I have tons of questions, observations, and even just my, my personal stories to add to how you've done this with me. So one, I want to say that, you know, um, like, get a financial planner and things like that. I'm so glad I did this work first or am doing this work first because that's still the logical side of money. And uh, I think my first, my very first, uh, when I met you, my first interaction with you was taking a class that you were hosting. And it was um, either titled the emotions behind the money or my relationship with money or my money story. I don't remember (laughs) what it was titled, but it was all that, right? How do I come to understand my relationship with money Um, the same way I would when I'm working with a client to understand their relationship with their family of origin? Right. Um, that, that is what, what did you learn? So when, when I talk about templates, beliefs, worldviews, behaviors, this definitely translates to money. What were my beliefs about money growing up and how did that come to be? What worldviews did I develop based on those beliefs and what behaviors have resulted because of those worldviews? And so I began to kind of look at my relationship with money, my family's relationship with money, 
um, what I, what I, what, not just what was taught to me, because I'll be honest, almost nothing was taught. Never is. No one taught me anything about money. You know, we, they didn't sit down and we didn't have lessons about it, but I learned a lot by watching the, what was happening around me. And so why is it important for a person to understand their relationship, their historical relationship with money, if they want to move towards these possibilities you're talking about? So the important part with regards to understanding your historical relationship with money is, does it still work for you? And they're automatic patterns. So if these automatic patterns that came up as some form of defense when you were a child, and I'm just going to throw it out there. Let's say when you were younger, or when I was younger, might as well use one of my stories. You know, I was the youngest in my family. My father worked really hard. My mom was an artist who would prefer to be doing art, but also loved, you know, like doing the creative aspects of things, but was also like overwhelmed with all the kids at home and tending to my dad and all this other stuff. So when I all of a sudden wanted attention or, or, or something, now if something was bleeding, I always got attention, you know, mm-hmm. but if I wanted attention, um, I would, you know, act out because I would get attention, but it wasn't always the right attention. And I realized a lot of times I may do something funny and I got a laugh. So I do something funny again. I'd get another laugh. I would do something funny again. And they'd be like, that's enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that laugh was a reward for me that I got their attention. So I could be possibly doing the same thing with my relationship with money. Or I might, um, to get attention from people, if I tended to their needs, they would then thank me. So I have a very nurturing aspect on the Enneagram. I'm a nine and the archetypes, I'm a nurturer. So I have these ways of going out of my way to tend to other people to kind of create, I mean, I understand it now, this codependency, but it was a way for me to feel validated. Well, Mm -hmm. I had those same patterns with money and not to say, and they, they didn't work for me very much, you know, anymore. And no one pattern, um, works the continuous time without taking a look at it because you'll have the positive aspects of those patterns, the gifts and the strengths. And then over a period of time, those gifts and strengths, you know, get a little out of whack and we might fall into some of the challenges. And the challenges might be having boundaries around money and not giving more than you have. It could be um, there are people who jump like a maverick and they say, I just need to go jump and try something new and different. Well, they haven't calculated all of different financial risk um, Mm -hmm. and, and figured out what the return of that jump would be. And the thrill for them is just the jump. And there's all these different personalities out there in regards to money, and they all have strengths. If you understand what the strengths are, you can play into the strengths. But if you don't understand what the challenges are and the weaknesses, you don't realize when they've usurped your energy and your thought patterns. It doesn't matter what your personality is around money. They all have the ability of being very successful having, uh, making great money and being able to save money as well. Um, 
but it's just a matter of recognizing some of the patterns and you'd be like, oh, 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 I'm in a place right now of survival, you know, could be even repeating trauma. Um, I can't quite get over into my gifts. And then you can pause and say, is this really true? Am I in an unsafe space? And is the pattern repeating? And it may feel very true. And this is your area of expertise, right? And when somebody makes, it feels really true and they're spiraling into this pattern of history. Once they're aware of it, they can pause and stop and then bring in some, some compassion and rational um, thinking to be able to shift it. Um, but if we don't know the automatic patterns when they come up, it's really hard to change it. So, 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 so true. So <clears throat> I'll use a personal example here, I think, to exemplify some of the things you were saying. And I, I, I appreciate the work you do because, again, I feel like it's so compatible with other tools and, and lenses that I've been using. So we've talked about my littles. Um, you introduced me to the money archetypes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my primary, um, I act out of my primary archetype of nurturer, nurturer, like you said, I'm an Enneagram too. Um, I have a lot of littles. <laughs> and so, um, you know, when I put all of that together, how I've been able to develop an understanding of realizing my patterns and how the trauma I've experienced plays out with money is um, pretty similar to your story. There are a lot of attributes, I think, that are similar between nines and twos, Enneagram mm-hmm. nines and twos. Uh, my, Jay, my husband is a nine, I'm a two. Um, and so for me, I learned a couple of things growing up that my littles cling to. One, you don't ask smiling people what's wrong. And so I always look like I have it together. Um, two, if I can be helpful and meet other people's needs, then I can um, give them a reason to choose me, to want to be in connection with me, yeah. to be in relationship with me. And so those have been patterns of my life. And I was thinking about this on the drive to my office. I don't know if it's because I knew I was talking to you or just because I don't know why I was thinking about it, but I thought about how the different parts of me I have to tap into to do certain things and how I definitely have to move into eight Enneagram eight, which I can go to as a two when I'm negotiating my, my fees and my mm-hmm. rate, because when my, when my Enneagram two is leading and someone even remotely makes a facial expression that would suggest that maybe my rates are too high, then my littles and my two converge and they're like, oh, no, no, it's okay. Like, totally, I can do it for free. <laughs> you know, it's okay. Choose me, choose me, please. Like, be in connection with me. And, and it's like, you know, I find myself, oh, well, you know, and just instead of standing firm in, in some of the realities, it felt in the moment, like, uh, like something was going to pass me by, like I was going to be disconnected, like, like people wouldn't like me, all of these things, it felt that. So taking that deep breath, knowing where that registers in my body as well is, is huge coming back to, I always come back to, we have to understand where these things are lodged in our bodies and being able to realize that one, I appreciate that once the rate, the rates are a race, right? Mm-hmm. And that has been helpful. But even in setting my own rates, right? 
it, it's a roller coaster. I yeah. have called you many times <laughs> to talk me off many ledges or maybe talk me onto a ledge because I needed to leap. Like, okay, Liz, I need you. Like, this is hard. And generally speaking, people in my profession suck at this. Okay. Um, it, it's just the overall, you know, we've gotten into this work for a reason. And a lot of us are battling our own traumas. Mm -hmm. And so it has been very helpful to not just feel like I'm swimming in the ocean um, with no land in sight, but it's not just that you come along with a boat and say, hop in, I'll save you. You keep giving tools for me to be able to sit with and be considerate of, um, to think about. And I think one of the biggest things that I've probably learned from you in regards to money, which is also one of the biggest lessons I've learned from my husband in regard to life. And that's the power of the pause. Uh, the power of the pause. See wow. my response and my, my generalized autonomic response to trauma is quickness. Give an answer right now. Shapeshift because as a shapeshifting people pleaser, I did it instantaneously. So every answer, every response I gave was immediate. And and my Jay was the first person to tell me in my life. So I'm in my 30s by this point. You know, you don't have to answer that phone, right? I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what do you mean? I like cock my head to the side with one eye squinted. Like, I don't understand those words. Like, I understand the words, but what do you mean? And he's like, well, you're busy. You don't have to answer your phone. And it was just like, okay. Um, <laughs> I don't believe you, but I'm intrigued. Tell me more. Like, I literally did not know that I did not, like, I that I had the the possibility to, like, send a call to voicemail Instead of shaping and shifting and and accommodating everyone. And then when you came along and kind of taught me that I don't have to give an answer right away. I was like, wait, oh, that's, but, (laughs) right? But I'm learning the power of the pause. I know that's my experience, but can you elaborate on that a little bit for the listeners who might struggle like I struggle? Yeah. And it's not just the pause. What it is, is about creating alignment in your head, your heart, and your guts. So you may believe something to be true in your head, but your heart and your gut don't resonate with that truth yet. Or you might believe something in your heart, but your head and your gut don't believe it. And if you're in the middle of a negotiation And you, not you, but um, let's say I'm in the middle of negotiation and I come out with the price of the negotiation before my head, my heart, my gut are on the same page. They're going to sense that something is not feeling true for me. So if I say something and my body's like, oh, that's a lie. It's pretty obvious now. I, I can't say that this has always been obvious for me. It took me embodiment and exercising with regards to going, okay, body, it's safe to feel you. And we often turn this off um, at some point in our life. If we're not people who are completely embodied, I'm a nine, you know, I'm supposed to be embodied, but you know, um, I feel things intensely in my body. I turned it off at some point. Mm-hmm. I had to relearn this because I'm like, why are these things happening I believe this to be true, but like, it's not acting like it's a truth for me. And I realized my body didn't accept it as a truth. 
And I had to get to the point of recognizing what a lie felt like in my body. So if I said something, if I said to a client who wanted me to build some training around the emotions, around money for their staff, because I do it for salespeople, this, that, and the other, and based on what they were doing, let's say it was $10,000. If I said $10,000, but my body was like, oh, that doesn't feel right. You know, we may need this right now. Say five, say five. They're not going to get it. They're going to be like, she's not the right person. So it's okay to say, this is great. I have everything. I have to put together some ideas and some proposals. What else do I need to know? And then you can go back and you can allow your body to have a conversation with your heart and your head to get an idea of the truth and say, okay, this is where we're going. This is what we're going to do. How do you feel about it? And if part of you doesn't feel safe, it's the opportunity to create that safety so you can move forward. Like, it sounds so great, but let me tell you, when, <laughs> y'all, this don't feel good. I right. One of my more recent experiences with Liz is it's like essentially she's on retainer, right? Like, Liz, I need you. Um, you know, I, I feel like at some point I'm going to have access to her. So I message her and I'm like, can we talk really quick? You know, whatever it is. But she said something to the effect of, well, you know, you won't actually be talking money to maybe the third or fourth interaction. Mm-hmm. My whole body froze up. It was like, <laughs> wait, what? What do you mean? Like, and she's like, yeah, like you, you won't actually be talking like dollars and cents until another meeting. And I, that I was just like, I don't know what is going on. Every alarm in my body was sounding like, what does she mean? Because I was fighting that I'm having this meeting about, you know, whatever services they need, what I can provide. And I was so anxious because I couldn't, the numbers, I didn't know, do they fall in this category? Do they fall in this category? And da, 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 da. And what Liz always does, which is what I do to other people. So I can say, that I feel the pain <laughs> of my right. clients because they come in wanting to talk about one thing. And it's like, oh, we're not even near talking about that. Mm-hmm. We got to go. We got to go to the root. And she rooted me. And I'm like, Liz, right. just tell me the number, right? Or help me figure out the number. And it's like, no. So she started doing what I needed to do. She started to get me in my body. Yeah. She started to help me evaluate the stories. And just like I do, she wouldn't answer a question. She kept answering questions with questions. Um, <laughs> and it's just like, dude, it lose. But I so appreciate it. And it's just that I, I needed to, I needed to go slow enough to know yeah. that, that this is the process. But what that also requires me to do is have an understanding of my value that people will wait. Yes. That people will wait because I provide a valuable service. And when I underestimate my own value, mm-hmm. then I rush to conclusions and I rush to solutions that don't serve me or the potential client. And so yeah. it it has been this, this evolution of understanding worth and value for myself. Um, which has been huge. I can say that when we met a couple of years ago, 
it is not um, far-fetched to use the word terrified. I was terrified of money. Yeah. Like not that, you know, the pieces of paper were going to grow teeth and like bite me, (laughs) not that kind of scared, but I was terrified of what of my, of how I would mismanage it, of how I wouldn't know how to use it, how I wouldn't be able to make it in abundance, how just, I had all of this, this fear. And by starting to evaluate the relationship with money, Man, I mean, it was working through trauma. It was just trauma in a different area of my life. And I, that I just had never considered that as as trauma informed and as trauma responsive as I was, that I hadn't considered that uh, all of that trauma translates into your financial life as well. And so I've, I've imagined it on a spectrum. And when I started when I, and when I met Liz was the very beginning of my um, entrepreneurial journey. So it was very great timing. Um, and I was probably on one end of the spectrum. It was tremendous fear. And I was living out of, um, out of scarcity, 100% living out of scarcity. And as I have progressed, I, I found myself moving. So what I thought was pretty much the middle of this spectrum, which was sufficiency, Mm-hmm. I have finally gotten to a point where I realize that I have all I need. Like there, I have what I need, but I was still in survival mode yeah. in this sufficiency area. And so what I'm doing now is I am moving along that spectrum towards abundance. And I am definitely not all the way there, but I'm certainly not where I started. And I'm not yes. even... I'm not even in the middle anymore. Like there is an understanding of abundance that I have. And that doesn't just mean money. It's an abundance of resources. It's an yes. abundance of uh, supplies. It's an abundance of you know, Time, energy, everything. Person, mm-hmm. everything. And so what I had to do on the money journey is realize that it's not about, you know, the bills and cents. And I had to take a step back and look at how I was living my entire life out of scarcity and then my entire life out of sufficiency. And so if I want to move financially towards abundance, I have to be able to look at abundance from a much broader perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and that has been helpful. So what can you say to people? That's my own personal story. Um, but what would you say to people who are wondering where they fall on in this, in this spectrum, if you will, and, and what that, what that could mean for them. Well, there's a couple different things to take a look at with regards to abundance. And in my opinion, abundance doesn't stop in any one area. It's you abundance is time, energy, money, resources, everything. Right. And some people um, look at abundance with regards to relationships. They don't care as much about money because they have all these relationships and the relationships provide them with the resources they need. So abundance is a matter of, um, you know, are you in a position of doing what you want when you want to, um, with kind of the sense of freedom and not feeling tied down, but it's more than that. It's, are you able to give, are you in a position to give? There are ethnic groups and that do things in community, um, economically isolated. There's a lot of stories with regards to how do they make sure that the needs are met of the community. And I think that's really, we have a lot to learn as people from each other. Um, because you've got this individual 
are my needs being met? And then we also have the community. Are the people's needs being met as a whole? So I love the movements that we're seeing of the me to we across um, many different areas for social justice, for many, for everything, right? And when I look at abundance, me personally, when I feel abundant is when I know I can lift others and I can be there for others. So this is fresh in my head with regards to research. It has shown that when women feel abundant, they will give, invest, support with energy, time, and money other women businesses. So when women entrepreneurs and women um, feel abundant, they will go and invest in other women or other organizations or other everything. Um, I personally believe that you give along the way. And then when you get to a sense that you can give without regards to how much you're giving, that's when it feels really abundant for me. And I think abundance is something that everybody has to define for themselves, what that looks like. I've worked in the financial industry for 25 years. I've known people with millions of dollars that don't feel abundant. And I know people with $50,000 to their name that feel extremely abundant. It's a feeling. And it's a feeling of, are all of your needs being met? Creativity, safety, physical needs, meaning, connection, those things. I love Dr. Marshall Rosenberg's feelings of connections um, or feelings to, to say and needs to say if my needs are being met. But it's not just the basic needs. It's above and beyond. Am I in a plethora of resources that I can give my time, my energy, and my money to other things that I believe in? to create possibilities for other people. And I, I think a person can find themselves in survival mode and think I'll never be there because I thought that, Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, it was like, you know, or honestly, I probably had a thought of like, well, this is how I give. I, I, I provide this service. That's how I give back to people, but mm -hmm. you know, not feeling that I would ever get to a point where, um, I'd want to share my money because I lacked it for so long <laughs> that it's like, nope, that's mine. So I also noticed that there is a hoarding tendency and cycle in my family. Yeah. Uh, and we, and, and it looks different. It's not like the show hoarders, right? But there is definitely hoarding that takes place throughout the generations in my family, the, 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 um, accumulation of stuff and then the protection of it, because we might not have more later, or it's going to come back in use and I might not be able to afford to re get it. And I had to evaluate that as a trauma, yeah. a trauma pattern, you know, generationally that's passed down and how I did that, um, in money and how that showed up for me where I began to realize it is one, how I hated playing Monopoly. I really <laughs> did. It just, it gave me a lot of anxiety. So I'd be like, I'll watch, I'll play, I'll be the banker or something, but I don't want to play. And if I did play, how I played was so eye-opening to me, which was I needed to accumulate all the money I could, but I never wanted to spend it. And you so know really interesting about the game monopoly if you research the woman who developed it it was actually created to say as a community how can we create 
everyone's, how can we meet everyone's needs? And then it was turned into Monopoly. <laughs> Which is that. Which is so, not that, right? Yeah, society, right? right? Mm-hmm. You know, taking that. And I remember when you told me that, I was like, yeah, that is not exactly how I experienced that. <laughs> it is. Uh, you know, it's nerve wracking and it's like, okay, fine. If I do buy the houses, but then can you upgrade? But what if I don't have money and oh my God, avoiding, you know, going to jail and then avoiding the tax. And it was, it was so fear-based that it was never fun for me. And the story my brain reached for the convenient narrative was, well, I just don't like the game. Well, I realized now that it wasn't about liking or not liking. I didn't feel safe playing mm-hmm. the game. It, it, it caused me to have this tension in my body because of my relationship with money. And so I, I just wanted to put that out there. But I can say that as I'm moving along this journey, I find myself hoarding things less and less. I find myself um, in a position to give more and more, but not out of my two-ness. Not out of my, I'm going to give to you so you pick me. Um, I'm bribing you to like me kind of thing. <laughs> I, it was, It's less of that and it's more genuine and it's more thoughtful um, and it's Without more boundaries. Any hooks, right. Yeah. And I have boundaries around it. So this journey that I have been on and you've been an integral part and it's interwoven with so many aspects of my life has been just ridiculously eye-opening and transformative, you know, as I move, because part of my fear was, uh, and we've had this conversation many times, I got to stay small because as long as I stay small, I can manage that, right? I had a fear of uh, taking up all the space that I'm supposed to take up in this world because a part of that encompassed money coming with it. And it was very, very terrifying. And I've had enough conversations with people to know that I'm not isolated in that experience. And so kind of as we get ready to close up, do you have any words of wisdom or suggestions for people who may be kind of in that space? You know, there's there's things that, you know, in the millionaire mindset is if they lose money, they just make more. If they no longer like, um, you know, if they had accumulated stuff over time and they're like, I'm going to change things up, they donate that to somewhere. They don't have a garage sale. They just donate it because they know that there's plenty of resources and that um, that more will come their way and that they trust themselves enough to be able to make more and that they have their own needs, their own ways of making more money. and. And even when I sit there and take a look sometimes at the millionaire and billionaire, you know, I, I was never surrounded that much with millionaire and billionaires growing up. Right. And it's hard to fathom that, but in some regards, money is in the proper perspective for a lot of those people. They're like, I trust myself enough that I will always be able to meet my needs, whether or not money is in my life. I'll figure out a way to make sure that my needs are met. And there are a lot of people um, that have that sense of abundance. And as I said earlier, when I worked in the financial industry, there are beautiful people who, you know, are so abundant and they may only have 50000 or $100,000 to their name and they're retired and they have a pension coming in, but they give and they receive abundantly, continuously 
because that's the mindset that, that they have. They know that the resources are always going to be there, whether it's them as an individual or them in community that will be able to have their needs met. Um, but you have to do it from a place of safety. If you are dealing with trauma and trauma is making the decisions around money, then we got to look at the, the trauma and get you, get everyone to a place of safety. And that's why it's so important that eventually I hope as people, we start to say, let's figure out how we can take care of all of our people, you know, because if we can get everybody out of a place of trauma, we could create some really amazing things in this world. Um, but that's a whole nother labor of love session, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. I don't know if it's appropriate for me to end there, but that's what I would love to see. And that's what Shimula is about is helping women get to a place where they are comfortable and safe around money so they can enter into this collective so we can lift everybody up and create these amazing things going forward and create the possibilities and open no, those doors. I think it's very appropriate to <laughs> end there. It, it is, it is so needed. So can you tell the listeners um, how they can get in contact with you, learn more about Shimula, or if you said something that was extremely intriguing to them and they want to start taking a dive of their own, how can they find you and get in touch with you? Yeah, um, we're on Facebook at Shimula and Shimula is S-H-E-M-O-O-L-A-H. Um, we also have a LinkedIn page, um, an Instagram page. Shimula.com is actually um, getting up and running this week. It's it's a new company. Um, I was doing everything under myself, but I took a partner on about a year ago, and we're now creating a webpage, www.shimula.com. And we have lots of different things from individual classes of learning your archetypes and how to use the strengths to, you know, you have a big dream goal aspiration. Let's let's come up with a plan and get you there and create it from the future so you know that you can um, step into your strengths and and do the things you know how to do and not be overwhelmed by the things you don't know how to do. So that's how people can find me. Um, and I look forward to being a part, whoever feels called to move forward and reach out. Awesome. So we will definitely have that information in the show notes. Um, and I am going to kind of finish us up here with uh, something I like to ask my guest is tell us a uh, interesting, fun or little known fact about Liz. So um, interesting, fun. Well, I danced in a ballet company until I was in my middle 20s. And um this is this is something that uh, if you find me in an event and there's music playing um, and I'm not on stage or you're not asked to dance, you will find my foot moving or my hand moving to the music at all times. I definitely love to dance. It's in my blood. That is awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And now I'm going to have to pay attention to you when we can meet in person and there's music playing and look at your foot and your hand. <laughs> right? Liz, thank you so, so, so much for joining us today, for imparting so much of your heart, your passion, and your wisdom. I'm very honored. And I know that my listeners are going to get um, a lot out of your session. So thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. 
Absolutely. To all of my listeners, as usual, I thank you so much for taking the time to spend with me today. If you'd like to get in touch with me, if you have suggestions for content or guests, please reach out www.thelaborsoflove.com or on all the major social media outlets. Don't forget our Therapy Thursdays that come out on our YouTube channel. And don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. Until we connect again, you all be well. Thank you.